First Peter chapter one, verses one through nine. First Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peace be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the, the salvation of your souls. So we remember this day, and in remembering this day, I want to begin by uh, reflecting on a couple of m- what I would call movements that came out of uh, September 11, 2001. One is that th- there was a, uh, a, a wanting to get back to um, finding a place of comfort, and maybe that would be found in, in, a, in a church or uh, in a place like this on a Sunday morning, and people were coming, and I remember having some deep conversations with people about the meaning of life and what this event meant in our world. People really cared. People were crying, and I, I mean, it was, you, you guys, if you were there, you remember the emotions that surrounded this day. And there was, uh, there were events such as Billy Graham uh, praying, and if you never heard that prayer, you could, you could Google it and just Billy Graham's prayer for 9-11, really powerful, as he prayed for the God of comfort to comfort this nation, and especially those families who lost loved ones that day. And um, it brought some hope that maybe some good things can come out of something so evil, right? I mean, I think we all hope for that. But then the statistics, and this isn't me being cynical, but the statistics pointed that the church attendance went up for about six to eight weeks, then it kind of leveled back down to where it was. You know, people move on, and they get back to whatever normal was. And, you know, normal can be a good thing or a bad thing, but that's, that's what happened. So anyway, there was that kind of short-term impact that, um, that that event had. And then there was a longer-term impact, and uh, this is one that, uh, maybe isn't quite so well known, but if you connect the dots and think about it, it's probably had more of a profound effect on our culture. So prior to that time, I know I had never heard of the new atheists or, the, or new atheism. There's always been atheism, but there was something new here. And there's, an, there's four authors in particular uh, who were associated with that in the United States and England. 
Richard Dawkins being one, but another one was uh, Sam Harris. And I'm going to give you a quote from Sam Harris now. And this is, um, yeah. The men who committed the atrocities of September 11th were certainly not cowards, as they were repeatedly described in the Western media, nor were they lunatics in any ordinary sense. They were men of faith, perfect faith, as it turns out. And this, it must finally be acknowledged, is a terrible thing to be. And there's, there's a lot of truth in what he says, but I want you to know that the conclusion that he comes to is that we're not just talking about jihadism or Islamism or fundamentalism. We're talking about all faith and that Christianity is every bit as dangerous as any other faith. So instead of being comforted, he's, you know, the atheist, atheist view is very different. And that view has, has grown and developed since 9-1-1. And Christendom, which we're going to define here in a second, which means the, the influential center that Christianity once had within our culture has, has diminished in the last 15 years. So I want to define that word for you. What is Christendom? Uh, Historically, first of all, it was in the Middle Ages when the church was right there with government, you know, together. And uh, they did, they, it was right in the center of the institutions of the culture in Europe. When the United States came about, that connection wasn't, obviously, we tried to separate church and state. But there was a, a, a sort of a public uh, center that valued Christianity. And so here's, what, here's a definition I'm working with. A society where Christian values are dominant and associated with the high places of public life, including the media, politics, law, the arts, and education. And you can find all kinds of quotes in the history of, of the, uh, America where you'll, you'll see Christendom was very present. And then another way to say it is simply a place where Christianity is privileged. And, and since 2001, but long before that, there's been this dwindling uh, sense of privilege being lost. That the Christianity is no longer privileged. And we're going to talk about that in this series, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, there's, there's actually a really good thing about it, but we'll, we'll save that. But um, the, I guess what I want to get here starting out in this series is that you can't think we're a Christian nation any longer. I would argue that we never were, really, but the, and that the Bible would say that there is no such thing as a Christian nation. But there was a time that was different than now. And, and what do we do about that? And so Peter, who was writing in the first century before Christendom ever got established, has some words that might work for us as the Holy Spirit, who can only do this, can take words that were written 2,000 years ago in a whole different place and bring them into our time zone and into our own hearts and speak to us. So I hope your radar is up this morning as you hear from this first century writer. We're going to be in this series called Against the Flow. How do we, how do we stand strong? The key verse in Peter, uh, every, every book of the Bible kind of, if you think about it, has a key verse, and at least that the experts acknowledge. And this one is found in 1 Peter 5, 12, and it's uh, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm. How do we stand firm when the culture is going one way and we're going the other way and it feels pretty lonely sometimes? And for nine weeks, we're going to be in this series. Now, I did the math, and that takes us right through the election in November. And I kind of of liked it that way because he's going to talk about how to live publicly in this book. And I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert thing right now is that he kind of slices and dices both the political left and the political right, 
So be ready to be offended, okay? And you'll hear some of that today, I think, as he redefines uh, uh, our thinking. So we're going to look at two words today uh, that are, we're not going to get very far, but these two words are huge in his letter. They're, they're themes that we come up with in his letter, and they're identity words. He's saying, you are exiles, and you are chosen. And then the question is, do you embrace the identity that he is giving to you? So we begin with what was read, and we're going to cover two verses today. So it's, you know, we're going to go a little slower and deeper here. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle, or a messenger of good news of Jesus Christ. Now, why would Peter be a messenger of good news? Well, he has this, this gospel. He's going to talk about that. But personally, why would it be good news to him? And we remember that in Peter's life, um, I'll just kind of fill in some blanks here, but Peter was once a great leader uh, in, in the disciples. He was kind of like the head guy in the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around for three years and at the end of those three years, when Jesus was crucified on a cross, on the night before he was crucified, Peter had this one chance to stand firm, and he blew it. And um, a total meltdown. Denied that he even knew who Jesus was, you know. So uh, Peter knows what it feels like to be a failure, as do you and I, right? He, he has that in common. But that's not good news. The good news is that even though he's a failure, he knows that he's forgiven. And so um, he goes on to be uh, Peter, in, in a leader in the, in the new church, and that process of how such a failure could be redeemed is the story of the good news in his life. Okay, so there's Peter, and he's uh, writing to God's elect. And we're going to come to that word in, in verse 2 in a different form in the word chosen. That's one of our key words, so we'll hold that for now. And then he says, to God's elect who are exiles. So uh, this is that, that word, exile. And what do we do with that? The other translations of this are stranger. Uh, you are a stranger. You are a foreigner. And then in in chapter 2, it says that you are a resident alien. It's another Greek word, but it kind of captures the similar stuff. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, a, in just a sec. So living in exile, um, this is a word that says you're going to feel a little weird, a little off as you go through this life. You're not, you're not going to feel like you can just go with the flow and it's all going to work out. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, and that's the choice that each of us has, whether we do or not, I'm not here to, to uh, make anybody do anything, but that's, that's the, uh, the choice, that to follow Christ. It's going to be really, really hard. And you're going to feel at times like you're a, you're a fish out of water, you're going against the flow, you're swimming upstream, however you want to say it. Okay, so I'm going to give you a picture here of uh, kind of a, a metaphor type picture of what life in Christ is, is about. So there's this old reality down here that we come out of. This is kind of the way the world does stuff. And, um, but we enter in, as we cross this bridge, we enter into new life in Christ and we begin a journey, and it's not a straight line. I've never known anybody, I don't care what faith they were or who they were, nobody lives this life in a straight line. Even, even the engineers don't. They try. <laughs> they try. Well, I got it planned down to the detail. Fifteen years out, I know what I'm doing on Thursday. Well, you don't, okay? 
uh, it's a twisty, turny road where we make lots of plan Bs and sometimes we totally feel out of control. But we believe that God is in control over our free choices and we do this thing and we, you know, there's difficulty here, there's temptations and testing, there's joys too, we know that. We know that. And then you get to this final destination, which is your home. It goes off the charts here, but that's... There's, a, there's an eternal destination that is your permanent address. When you're in exile, you don't have a permanent address. If you take out your driver's license right now, just know that it's not quite right, okay? And uh, you, you have a more permanent home. And if you, if you scratch out your address there and write in, in heaven on the card, you're, the police officer who pulls you over will think you're nuts, but that's okay. All right. So we're exiles on a journey, and we're going to feel out of, out of place at times. Um, let me get you another. Th- this is kind of a synopsis of what many have said this letter is addressing that Peter speaks to physical and psychological pressure, uh, social ostracism and exclusion. Oh, that doesn't feel good. See, this is a cost stuff. The pull of a former way of life, that old reality, you get, you get pulled back into that. Mm. Sometimes you just can't say no. Uh, the surrounding seductive culture that um, takes us in, inconsistent behavior of believers, doubts about God's promises. You know, when you're that one fish that's swimming this way and everybody else is swimming that way, and the only reason you're going that way is because God has promised something, it is still really, really hard, and you have to cling to that promise with tenaciously. And then Satan's deadly temptations, he deals with that too. So it's, it's a life that is circuitous, it's, it's up and down, and you have to believe by faith that you're going somewhere and that God is in control. Uh, that's the life that Peter addresses. And it's a life of a person on a journey who's in exile. When I was back in the, uh, so a little, that, that feeling that I'm trying to describe, this might help, I don't know, but when I was in a formal life, I was... Uh, I, our family and I owned a, a, a Hallmark card shop. You know what that's all about, and um, it's called. They, they called it social expression, which is kind of ironic when it, the story I'm going to tell you here. But that's the way you express the things that are on your heart. You know, when you care enough to send the very best, right? <laughs> yeah, and um, my wife, by the way, she got into uh, what do you call stamping. That, that, I said, that's not good. You know, this is, I got, you got to support the livelihood here. But anyway, um, Hallmark, I, so one day, our, this was after I bought the business from my dad, it was, it was, there was a struggle there, just it wasn't, things weren't going the way they should have gone and blah, blah, blah. But I, uh, what does it mean to live by faith? Well, I, there were some women came, they were, that came to me and they were very nice. I want to say that, very, very nice. And they said, can we just put up a, uh, table outside here. We have a petition or an initiative or whatever it was. It was Washington State's, and it had something to do with a pro-life initiative. And I said, sure. And I let them sit out there. And I thought, there's probably some risk to this, but I had no idea what the risk was. So, you know, customers that would come in, did you let them sit out there? Yes, yes, I did. It was, well, we're not shopping here anymore. And it, you create a reputation as being, here's the word that we hear today, but you're an extremist. And all I was trying to do was be consistent with what I thought was at least 
the, and I was probably naive about it being, you know, it was at one time the, the majority view in our culture, but now it's the minority view, and I didn't know it was going to be so upsetting. And, but that feeling inside of being against the flow is what I'm trying to get at here. It could, be, it could have been anything. That, that's my experience. I have other stories that I'll probably share in the series. It, that's what it means, though, to live in exile. And it, you can't, here, I want to qualify this right now. Peter's going to tell us this later, but you can't always be against the flow in everything. Our culture isn't totally um, going the wrong way all the time. There's lots of wonderful things that we, in, in the civil rights movement and, and the things that, I mean, there's a lot of things here that I could talk about that are good things that our culture has figured out and sometimes the church lags behind. So if you find yourself always going against the flow and people are saying you're strange and weird, you may just be strange and weird, okay? <laughs> that's, that's very possible. Uh, but this is... I want to give you some statistics that sort of better describe what I'm trying to get at here. Reason for hope. Uh, millennials, um, let's see here. Yeah, let's, like, yeah, the first one. Adult Christians who feel their faith is countercultural, which is really what Peter is saying, is your, your faith is countercultural. Well, about 40% of adult Christians in America agree with that, that that's how they experience it. But millennial Christians who feel their faith is countercultural is actually much higher I have hope for that. If the Bible defines it as countercultural, then biblical faith, you should feel like you're going against culture sometimes. And millennials have a higher, much higher, that's from Barna Research. Um, here's another one. Society and faith intention. 65% of evangelical Christians feel society misunderstands their faith. 60% feel persecuted for their faith. We'll come back to that in a sec. 53% feel marginalized because of their faith. And 50% feel silenced because of their faith. And I'm guessing that all of you have felt some of that at some time. Now, are we really persecuted? That's a, that's a strong word. And uh, you could argue that if compared to other countries, we're not. But there's different kinds of persecution. And I'm going to let somebody from another country uh, speak to this. Uh, it's a Middle East house church leader. And he says that persecution is easier to understand when it's physical, like torture, death, and imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. That's somebody who lives with life and death that looks at America and says that we have a worse form of persecution. Interesting. Now, I'm not sure we don't feel it. That's one thing I'm not sure what he means by that, because I think we do feel it. And that's what um, I'm, we're getting at here. So resident aliens, um, let's, let's just think about that for a sec. We're not permanent citizens. We might think of ourselves as holding green cards that say we're okay being here, that you know we're not illegal, but we don't have a permanent address here. And uh, we're, we're sort of, of passing through. And it, it creates a, I'm trying to get at this thing, what you feel when you experience this. Here's another thing that, from my history, but when, it, when I was 12 years old, we moved to a new house. And in that house, um, we got to sort of, you know, you do the thing, there, there were bedrooms and there were four of us kids and I chose the downstairs bedroom. Being a 12-year-old boy, I wanted to get away from my older sister as far as I could and still be in the same house, I guess. But... Um, so I chose that bedroom, not knowing the history of that bedroom, uh, that during World War II, 
a uh, Japanese American who would have otherwise been put into an internment camp was housed in that basement. It, I, that, that's pretty cool. I, I feel like I, I'm somehow connected with history when I say that. And, um, but I remember thinking, I'm mean, looking at these walls as I, as I you know, discovered that truth over time, and not that I had great thoughts as a teenager about all this, but I remember thinking that this is, I'm looking at the same walls, I'm staring at these, and that person must have been down here for four or five years trying to just stay low, not be seen. And think about how weird that would feel. And yet he was a citizen. But not really. And that's, I'm trying to get at that feeling that we have when we walk through this world and we should never be surprised when we feel this way, according to Peter. In fact, the only way to not feel this way is to go with the flow all the time. Then you don't have it. But who likes to be called weird? I don't, you know. Okay. That's the, uh, do you feel, here's the question, do you feel like, can you embrace that word exile for you? I mean, it, it, that's, that's the question that is coming across the centuries to us. Do I live as an exile? Am I okay with that? Because there's a high cost. Am I willing to pay it? And, you know, you want, I think just any parent, regardless of their faith, would want their kids to be able to stand against the flow, right? To stand firm and not give in with, you know, those, those lines that parents have about just because somebody else did it doesn't mean you, get, you have to do it or whatever. And we have all that in our vocabulary just as parents. But we want to develop this sense of standing against the flow. Um, the word scattered is then the next word. And I'm gonna, we'll get to chosen in a sec. But scattered, they, these exiles throughout the provinces, the, the Greek word is diaspora, which we would get translate dispersed and it really has some meaning that we need to get at it, it's um, Old Testament when, they, when the first readers would have seen this they would have recognized that this is referring back to the exile in Babylon which is 600 years earlier when Israel as a nation was exiled to Babylon and they were called the diaspora and one famous person that is in the Old Testament from that time is the guy named Daniel and how did he stand strong? We're going to look at Daniel during this series, this young man who was able to live out his faith in another nation, live as an exile um, in, uh, in that new place called Babylon. Well, let's get to the word chosen because that's what it says next, is that um, these people uh, have been chosen, these people have been dispersed, have also been chosen. They are exiles who have been chosen. And this is part of our identity in Christ. And uh, it's a word that, it, here's, here's one way I want to say it, just thinking as uh, I was an economics major and the, the cost-benefit analysis thing, if being in a place of exile is the cost that we pay for following Christ, then the benefits of being chosen better outweigh the costs of, you know what I'm saying here? I mean, there's got to be some benefits to being chosen. <laughs> Or I wouldn't be up here you know, saying this is good. So um, let's, let's think about this. Now, the word chosen is uh, upsetting to a lot of us, and I, I struggle with it, because it, it implies that if we're chosen, that there's other people who aren't chosen, and that just seems totally unfair. Anybody with me on that one? So it, it's, uh, we have to wrestle with that just a little bit and acknowledge that there's a difficulty here. And I can't solve the difficulty for you other than to, to remind you of some things that I know that we should know are true, and I can maybe help, um, that to be, 
to be chosen, um, there's mysteries that abound. <laughs> and we do not know who is chosen and who is not. Only God does. So you have to just believe that. And in terms of how you are chosen, I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, there's, I mean, I, I can, I, I mean, is it God's thing that he just does or is it our free choice? And I could be up here for hours trying to figure that conundrum out. But it, there, all I want to say is that there's a mystery there about how this chosen thing works. Um, yeah, I, it, it's over our heads is how I would put it, but the Bible says it and so I have this thing that I just do like, okay, I don't understand it, but I'll believe it. We also know that God wants everybody to be chosen. He wants everybody to be chosen, but he's given us free will. He wants everybody to be saved, is what the Bible says. But people choose not to, and he honors that. And so, I don't know. Um, here's another thing we can say, is that chosen, a chosen people does not mean a choice people, as in terms of like how the USDA would use that word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying here? Or prime, or whatever. So, in other words, they weren't chosen. Israel was not chosen in the Old Testament because they were a better piece of meat or country. There was nothing about them that was attractive to them. So, Deuteronomy, you're wondering if I'm just making this up. Well, let me read it for you. Um, From Deuteronomy 7, the Old Testament, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. And what it goes on from there. That the reason he says his, his affection on them is because he loved them. Now, figure that out. You might say, well, God, you do not make sense. I'm with you. Because it's a tautology or a logical circle. The reason you love them is because you love them? There's no other reason? Well, that's what it, what it says. And it doesn't say that they were a faithful people. If you know the Old Testament story of Israel, you, we would wonder, scratching our heads like, why did you choose these guys, right? I mean, they just flop all over the place. They don't get it right very often. Kind of like us, you know. So, uh, he, he loves us because he loves us. Well, another mystery. But, maybe not as mysterious if you think about it. So let's go to marriage. Those of you who understand what that's all about, which is pretty much zero, but we'll, we'll go there anyway. <laughs> so I, every once in a while, when I get down in the dumps or I need a, a shot of self-esteem, I turn to that woman that God has given me to build me up, you know, and I say, Patty, what are 10 things that you just love about me? And she pauses, which gives me great concern, right? <laughs> And um, I think to myself, you know, I ask this probably at least once or twice a year. You should just carry around a list, the 10 things I love, you know, write it down. But, and so she, but she always makes an attempt, and it usually goes something like this. Uh, I love you because, well, she, she'll look at she, oh, I think you're attractive, you're a good-looking guy. And, uh, I, can, I can take that. And then she'll say something about you're being, you're, you're, you're smart. Okay, good. Yeah. And, um, you, you're funny sometimes. And, uh, yeah. And you're, and then, you know, a good provider. And usually when she gets to like number four, she just, oh, I just can't think of it anymore. And then she'll, and, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, but then she'll just say, I just love you. And, and I think, you know, down deep inside, I'm thinking that's probably the best thing you've said, you know? I love to play. I do have a sense of humor, if you can't tell. And, but honestly, that she loves me because she loves me 
is the definition of those vows that we make at the altar. Have you noticed there that none of that was, I'm going to love you because you, you're, I, I wouldn't do a wedding in that, you know, you're so good looking and you're, you know, and, and you get kind of, uh, no, it's sickness and health and better and worse and richer and poorer. And you have all the things that she mentioned that she loved about me, including my good looks. I can't believe I'll ever lose them, but she thinks I might and my smarts, you know, I might lose things up here and my income, I lose things out of my wallet. And what was the other one? My humor. I can't believe I'll ever lose that. But all of those things can be lost. And the question when they're lost is, am I still loved? Or is it more like God who says, I love you because I love you. And that's it. Period. Exclamation point. End of story. This is the gospel. That's what it means to be chosen. Is you are loved because you are loved. Period. There's no good reason for God's love for you other than you are you and he is him. Peter understood that, I think. Remember his failure we talked about earlier? You think Peter might have wondered if he was loved after he denied? Think of the crescendo. He denies Jesus once, twice, and then third time he says, I deny that I even know him and it happens that Jesus was in the area of Peter's voice. And Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked directly at Peter right after he said that. And just imagine Peter's eyes looking down at his shoes and how he felt. And he probably misinterpreted Jesus' eyes, who would have been saying, if we know Jesus, he would have been saying, I love you, Peter, through this moment. I love you enough to die for you. And he did. He loves us because he loves us. The last words of this section are um, very good. I, just don't, I don't want you to miss them. We're not going to focus on them, but it's very Trinitarian. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Okay, so Father, Spirit, Son, and when you're obedient to Christ, you're going to go against the flow. That's, that's what we've been talking about. You won't do it perfectly. You're going to need to be sprinkled with the blood. That means you're chosen. He loves you because he loves you. It's all right there. We've got two verses in, folks. My hope is that you're willing to embrace yourself as an exile and as a chosen person who is loved because they are loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that comes across the centuries to our own hearts today. May it go down deep and do its work. And may we hear your voice, Lord, that gives us courage to live in a way that is almost reckless, given the, the way we would, the world would think. But, but, but just being chosen by you, known by you, loved by you, unconditionally, gives us courage to stand in that place. So I pray, Lord, that each of our hearts right now would yield to your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.